Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today, Kurt and I are privileged to talk with Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt has been in the industry a long time. He he runs New Roads Treatment Center. Um, Eric has worked in behavioral health field for more than 20 years. He served primarily in key executive level positions for community-based behavioral health care and substance abuse treatment organizations. Eric boasts both a master's of science in social work and a master's of business administration. Besides his business and administrative success, Eric, has a, um, as a licensed mental health therapist, personally provides a variety of clinical services such as individual, group, and family treatment, diagnostic assessments, and psychosocial assessments, utilizing a range of techniques and theoretical designs. <laughs> Eric, I know you've been in this industry a long time, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to visit with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Um, your, your reputation precedes you. I've heard about you in the industry. I've heard some of the work that you've done and, and how incredible um, that has been at changing people's lives. And I wondered if maybe you could share a little bit of, of how you ended up in substance abuse and mental health. Okay, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, it was... <clears throat> It's, it's a bit of a funny story because I, I did not at all intend to do this. I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I grew up with really horrible asthma, and that really affected my childhood, affected what I could do, affected my, what kind of activity I could have. And I just kind of fell in love with uh, medicine. And, and my goal was to be a pulmonologist just because I was really familiar to me. And... Um, and I think that's pretty natural. Mm-hmm. Um, between my freshman and sophomore year, my dad and I had a series of disagreements, which led to me having to pay for a good portion of my education. And uh, I wanted to find some place that I could work at night. This is in Fort Collins, Colorado at CSU. And I wanted to find a place I could work at night. And I heard from a friend, oh, there's this, this youth treatment center, and you could get a night shift job there. And... And so I did. I got this night shift job there. It was pretty active, even at night, so I didn't get as much homework done as I was originally hoping to. And I was in my, between my um, junior and senior year, and I was applying in medical schools, and I had gotten into some. And the psychiatrist that worked there, and then another uh, social worker, clinical social worker, took me to lunch and just said, we think, we think that you really have an, a talent for that. And at, th- at this point, I'd been promoted, kind of not really always understanding why. Like, they took me off and put me on swings, and then all of a sudden I went, I went full-time. And I, I actually was, made more money at that point. It took me to get in, getting into my 30s to make as much money as I made when I was 21 <laughs> uh, because I was working for the government at that time. And... Um, and I really listened to them, and so I applied to social to society uh, programs and social work schools. Kind of followed what was going to be least expensive for me, honestly. So I went back to Texas, where I'm from, uh, went to UT, which which is was an incredible clinical experience, and they have a really good clinical track there. 
They also have a, a dual uh, master's and uh, JD program. So I was in with some really high caliber students um, who are pursuing some really high educational aspirations. And just every step of the way, I was working with pretty profoundly uh, affected subs uh, people with mental health issues, and almost all of them had substance use disorders. And so I, I, I pursued my MSW, and the only thing that I did that was not consistent with substance use treatment was I got a job working at um, at hospice. So I'd actually done my my half of my second year internship at hospice, and then they hired me. I primarily worked with people who had AIDS, and and this was early 90s, and so at that point, these people were dying, which is why they're at hospice, and most of what I did was working with their families to help the family come to some degree of acceptance, often in the final hours, that their son was homosexual, and could they find some way to forgive, forgive this and accept this and maybe even realize that this is this was God's work too and um, find some way to to let him pass uh, with some peace but everything else I did was pretty pretty related to substance use disorder during those those two years of my master's program well that's um that's kind of a heavy heavy job to work in hospice with AIDS yeah. patients who are dying and their families in, I'm assuming, were you in Texas then? Yeah, I was in Austin. And, and these family, I mean, in the nineties, that was still, you know, homosexuality is still their struggles around the stigma and all of that. <clears throat> and, and I'm not going to go in the whole LBGTQ community and all of that, but there's, there's a lot of work we've done and a lot of work to be done. Tell me about the spiritual or religious environment in Texas where you were working there to give a little bit of context. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Texas is a conservative state, and it remains conservative. Um, I, I grew up there, and, you know, I grew up primarily, I, I grew up interestingly Catholic, and I went to Catholic schools. But everybody else around me was Southern Baptist. All of the rest of my family was Southern Baptist. And so, too, were most of the people that I worked with in, when I was working at hospice. So I, I had a sense, because when I was with my grandparents, and I was with my grandparents a lot, I went to, to church at a Baptist church. And so I would go mass two times a week in Baptist church uh, on the weekend, so I felt like I had things really covered, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, um, so I really understood and, and had some compassion for where they were coming from and their beliefs and, and in some cases how they, how they had come to some rigidity about how their son should be living. And at the time of, and, and, at, and that's, and I could really accept that and understand that and, and validate that. And, work with them to come to, to come to some degree of acceptance, despite the rigidity of those, of those beliefs to let their son pass. And, and over and over again, what I actually saw was that the son wouldn't pass. They just kind of hang on. And I think the most dramatic case, I was actually working with a, with a family and the father worked for the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, and, just a really conservative thinker and, and some of my most beloved people in my life are conservative thinkers, so I'm not saying anything negative about that. And he just was really struggling. And, and, I, and I realized that, and, and his son, who I had known and worked with for several months at this point, and, and his son's uh, lover, uh, partner at the time, and I, and I, I, I mean, this was so profound, but I just, I just really realized and, and, and just felt that I needed to come from a place of where he would be coming from, which is what would God, what would God have me do? And I, and I said, Hey, to, I know how my loved ones who are Baptists would feel about this. And I also know that they would want to minister. They would want to minister to this person who maybe doesn't think or believe or live the same way you do. Ministry is still really important. It's, it's important to your son. And he's clearly holding on 
uh, for your forgiveness and acceptance. And I was able to work with that dad. I mean, it was just so profound and lovely at, at the time. And he went into his, to his son and, and the son was, was unconscious at first and actually became lucid for a short period of time. I mean, it was really miraculous. So uh, again, this is early in my career. So I'm just saying this stuff works. You know, this therapy really has some healing potential to it. And I, and he, and he, um, became lucid and talked to his dad and his, his, his sisters and brothers and his mom. And they left to go get a body eat and he died. He passed. It was just such an amazing thing to see. Oh, I still incredible. remember sitting, they had a swing and I still remember sitting on that swing with his dad talking about, talking about that. Yeah. less like it was yesterday. Ah, well, and, and what a profound place to start your career in, in hospice, which is some of the most, it is such a beautiful experience to watch somebody pass and to be there to support them and hold a space for them. Um, and, and my questions are going about five different directions, but I'm curious how much, how much work did you have to do to come to a place of peace yourself? Cause here you've got this really strong Baptist background, Catholic background. Did you have to shift your thinking some before you could help those families shift theirs? Well, I was, <laughs> I would, I hate to say it, utter uh, a perpetual state of confusion, <laughs> but I, the people I, I love the most were, in, were typically in disagreement about what happens next and how you get to what happens next. So, you know, I, I, I don't know that I had some strong truth. This is how it is. But I, I do say I had just such a wonderful advisor at UT. His name is Dr. Ron Banu. I don't know if he's still with us. And he just really loved what I, the work that I was doing over at Project Transitions, which is where, where, what they call, called the when people can no longer be cared for at the home. They went, had this beautiful home that they could go to pass. And he, he introduced me to some writings and some studies that had come out of the Naropa Institute, which is a Buddhist institute. And it was kind of my... I had taken Aikido, so I knew a little bit about it, but this was the first time to really practice mindfulness and how your calm could be infectious. And I remember reading this, this uh, uh, article that had been published, I don't know if it called, uh, on the care of a dying patient. And one of the things that they said is, uh, uh, we have a responsibility in that moment to be a placid lake for the people that are there emotionally struggling. And, and, and people... Are, uh, Losing a loved one, I'm sure most of people who are listening to this would know. It's a confused, confusing emotional time. In some ways, you're so glad that this person's no longer suffering. And you're super sad that they're not with you. And what I saw, too, is that some of the, the most healing moments and, and the relationship were in those last few months or even hours. And so that has to create this just uh, an, an emotional tension. And so I loved that he had given me that that feedback and 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 really kind of set my my path towards learning about and improving my own mindfulness practice. Really started then. Hmm. Very very cool story. And <clears throat> I mean, I think back on when I when I did my internship back at a halfway house, right, and how pivotal that was. It changed the whole way I looked at the world. Because here I come from a fairly sheltered environment and had not ever seen or heard stories. I mean, you might hear them in the news, these horrific stories. But here's woman after woman after woman coming and sitting down and saying, you know, things like, um, you know, I'm going to introduce you to my alter ego or my, my you know, uh, my, uh, my alter personality who's a four-year-old and her name is Sodomy. And I'm like, what? Oh my heck. And, and some of those kind of stories. And so I'm listening yeah. here, tell it, you know, you telling this and thinking this must've really started to, um, direct or, uh, you know, lend to the, the change that was happening for you as you were growing as a therapist. Mm -hmm. It definitely did. And I think there was a lot of convergence in those 
few years, not only when I was in graduate school, but in my post-grad training, which I did uh, with a with a, just a wonderful clinician named Carl Nichols. And I had learned this, and I was learning psychodynamic practice. I also was working at a place called Austin Family House, which is for women and children. And I was also working at a hospital, psych hospital. And it was, it was those places um, that that really got me interested in borderline personality disorder because I had people on my caseload and I could not, with all that I was learning about psychodynamic theory, I was not getting the behavioral correction. And then the other thing that happened was I just noticed that the people in, on my teams were, there was, they were pretty pejorative often about people with substance use disorder. They were really pejorative about people who had borderline personality disorder. There was just this, this community permission to make fun of them, give up on them, you know, say pretty hurtful things to them or about them. And I kind of got mad. And I said, I, 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 I know there is a better way to deal with this. And, and I had gone to the Evolution of Psychotherapy conference and seen Marshall Linehan speak. And then I said, oh, my gosh, there is something that we could do about this. <laughs> and so I just devoted my as much as possible um, de de devoted from then until now, which is probably 25 years um, from then until now to being better at working with those those people that have these chronic conditions like BPD and substance use disorder and Psycho psychotic disorders and and you but often all three uh, well and as you talk about that I, I mean I've seen people that struggle with mental illness that seems to at times take over their life and they make decisions that they wouldn't normally make mm -hmm. and they do things in a way that is not their culture it's not what they came from it's not what was modeled for them and you're like why why are you hurting yourself like this why are you going out and putting yourself in dangerous way and feeling compelled to do that um and instead of you know throwing up your hands and going there's nothing i can do you went to look for answers to help them yeah yeah i was really like I said, I kind of got mad about it. You know, just, I don't really like that there was, I think it's, it's still there. Maybe, hopefully not as much. Mm. I just didn't like how our field was treating that group of people, particularly the people with BPD. Yeah, it's, it's tough. So when you do dialectical behavioral treatment, and it sounds like you focus a lot of your energy there, that there mm -hmm. is that that can translate into different places in your practice and different types of mental illness in very effective ways. Am I reading it into that? Oh no, there's there's a multitude of of disorders and populations that benefit from from DBT and and it's being studied and adapted all around the world. Um, I, Marshall Linehan's not as involved, and and then and as it's being uh, the there's her, the Marshall Linehan adherent way. And then people in, in uh, Germany won't have ever met her. You know, they might have seen a video. And so I think that there's been some freedom with, with that. Uh, South America, there's, you know, most of the studies on DBT right now are outside of the United States. So these are these are not necessarily disciples, and what and what's wonderful about that is they're saying, well, why can't we adapt to this population? I think we can. I think we can change the workbook for them. And in fact, my team just uh, had a wonderful uh, training over the past couple of weeks with somebody who wrote a book on uh, using the skills, the DBT skills for people with psychotic disorders. Like, how do you? What skills do you use for someone hearing voices? What strategies are, are there? You cannot argue with them that they're not hearing this, but you cannot tell them that that's not real or true because it sure is for them. Mm -hmm. So what adaptations can we do? And, they, and, and, you know, I just love the wonderful creativity that we're seeing, especially now in adapting DBT to a, a variety of populations instead of just BPD. 
And incidentally, originally, she wasn't even thinking of it for BPD. She just she was thinking of it for people who had chronic, who were chronically suicidal and self-harmed. Mm-hmm. And and then it kind of, as she was studying it, people around her were saying, "You, sh- this, it sounds like somebody with BPD." And of course, we now know she had a history of chronic suicidality and self-harm and hospitalization. Uh, it's interesting to hear where some of these thoughts, uh, ideas came from, from her own history. It, well, it's so interesting that so often, even like yourself, who wants to go in and be a pulmonary medical doctor because you have <laughs> asthma, right? She's like, I got to figure out how to heal myself. And, and then she put herself to work in finding solutions, right? Finding things yeah. that would work. Yeah. They make some of the best, the best teachers. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I do not think I have BPD, but I do remember when I was, when I, when I was younger and with my sickness, it was real, I was really aware of the pain that that caused in people around me, Mm. you know, the worry and the pain. And I remember having these thoughts, like I somehow need to protect those people from myself, from me. How do I do that? And I remember one of my very first clients with BPD, I was sitting across the room. She was an exotic dancer. And, you know, I, I, I don't know that she was yet addicted, but she was on her way with cocaine. And she said to me, I just caused so much pain. I need to figure out how to protect people from myself. And I thought, well, I can really understand that. I can really understand that. I do find it so interesting that, you know, we might look at ourselves and go, our journey is so much different than someone that deals with addiction or someone that deals with a serious mental illness, but it's not. The journey and the challenges, they might be on a different place in the spectrum, but those core beliefs of am I enough and, you know, am I too much for people, those seem to be pretty similar. And I see you shaking your head going, Yeah. yeah, that's so true. The I'm not good enough story. Yeah, we all have that, right? Uh-huh. I don't think anybody's <laughs> immune. It just shows up differently in our lives. Mm-hmm. I tell that to my clients with BPD. And when I'm training, I always say, my mind works just like yours. It's just yours is on steroids. <laughs> yeah. It's a true story. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I want to ask you a question. You know, I've been listening to some of Daniel Siegel's work, and he's talking about attachment. And attachment's been, you know, has brought some really great research and knowledge base to how we address people. How do you, I don't know, compare is the word I'm going to use. How do you compare that to DBT? I don't think it compares, but do you see one just having different applications or do they tie together? Oh my gosh, no, they're, they're, they are completely interwoven. Because if you think of one of the primary diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorders is frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. And how, why, how in the world does someone be, become f- afraid to be abandoned? It's because they have a really fuzzy attachment process. And, and, and we know now we can kind of go back and look at their early childhood. And, and part of the reason they have that is that these really sensitive brains interact until more or less with a more or less invalidating environment. And if you're really sensitive, it could be a really good environment. Most of us would thrive. But yet they are dealing with kind of attachment trauma all of the time. I tell, I tell the story, if you think about a regular, if you think about a, most of us who have had kids know that that, that three-year-old is going to dart away from us and run around the corner. And we're going to hear them giggling and laughing because they feel really secure. They have objects constancy. They feel really secure that we're going to be coming back or come around the corner and find them. That's what makes it fun and thrilling. But if you have somebody with, with, with who is, has already started to experience attachment disruption and law and, and, um, then they're going to run around the corner too. And they're going to get over there and it's going to be thrilling for a minute. And then that fear is going to come up. This is three years old. And then they're gonna, and then what you're going to do? I'm afraid. I don't know that he's going to come for me. And I'm going to grab this gallon of glass, gallon of milk, and I'm going to smash it on the ground. Then everybody comes, and that behavior. What now that this attachment fear, this abandonment fear, um, that be the way to mitigate that is to do something sensational in your environment, and that's how people with to start to develop BPD. Those behaviors that we associate with BPD. So, so much of it is about 
this atta- this 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 kind of yo-yo attachment style that they enter adulthood with. Yeah, mm, that's powerful, and it's a powerful insight to to see somebody who's putting themselves in really harmful situations, but they are crying for attention. It's really mm-hmm. this. I need to connect with somebody or I'm going to die. And it doesn't matter if it's painful or hurtful or dangerous. I still have to do it. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. Yeah. And, well, and so all how of those do you... behaviors have served the purpose at one point or another. And I, yeah. and I have a client that just, I did a telephone consultation on Sunday who's still, she's in her twenties and she's still dealing with, Oh my gosh, this push pull. So she was in a really horrific relationship and thank God she is out of it. And now she's in a really good relationship. And that scares her a lot more than mm-hmm. the, believe it or not, than the horrific relationship. That that was palatable to her for some reason. But this one, you know, she, she and her text was, can you please call me? I just want to run away. I just, he's such a wonderful man and I just want to run away. And it's because she's accumulated all these she does have some big T traumas, but she also has she's accumulated all these kind of traumatic invalidations. And so she's, it's when she's there relating to him, it's just, it's just a complex set of emotions and thoughts for her. And, and who wouldn't want to flee? Yeah. Well, and she's, he's accepting her and loving mm-hmm. her and holding a space for her. And it's not traumatic and it's not loud and, and, and negative and you know and so that's got to be uncomfortable when that's what you're used to and that's how you're used to connecting with people yeah yeah that's i think incredible. i cut you off earlier i'm so i'm sorry about that oh no you're you're fine we'll just kind of kick back and forth here <clears throat> okay <laughs> okay so so you've learned so much and and now you're at what, what tell me what's between new roads and and um some of the other programs that you did. So you did, um, the, so I was at St. Francis, uh, down in New Mexico. And then I came for, and then I, when I moved here, which was, um, 20, 20, 21 years ago. Now I moved here. I worked for Utah County division of substance abuse and, um, and then I well, ran Odyssey House. So I moved to Odyssey House and I was director of Odyssey House. And now I've been at New Roads for 12 years. And the, the gift, the gift of New Roads has been that I can, I can really provide the services that I've wanted to provide my whole career. My wife actually says, I, I didn't remember this, but I did when she prompted me. She said on the, the night that I met you, I was asking kind of what your goals were, what you wanted to do. And, and I said, I want to start a program for people who, for women who are suicidal and cut on themselves. So I was pretty young to, I, I think I was 25 at that time. So it's been, it's really been a passion of mine. I'm curious, how do you move from, you know, Texas and New Mexico to Utah? That's, that's a pretty good jump. Oh, Yeah. Well, um, I, I followed my wife to Utah when we, when we were married, I, we lived in New Mexico and, and there's some, there's some wonderful things about Northern New Mexico. And then there's some, there's a reason Breaking Bad was based there. (laughs) It's a violent, violent place. And we had some murders very close to our home. And, um, she said, you know, I really, we just had a little baby she said, I just would feel more comfortable raising them, um, in a place that I know and I'm familiar with. And, um, uh, and we'd lost a friend of ours had been murdered. He was a defense attorney. He had been shot and killed literally on the courthouse steps. And, you know, there've been some violent attempts towards me. And so she just, she said, you know, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going home and I hope you come with me. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't asking for permission. She's like, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this anymore. (laughs) The decision was made. (laughs) Yeah. That's fantastic. She's from Utah then. Yeah. She grew up in Cottonwood Heights. Oh, nice. Nice. So you've been here for a long time. Yep. 2000. Moved here in 2001. So talk a little bit about new roads and what you're able to do there with these. It is it just women. No, we have a program for men too. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, talk about what you do. Talk about your women's program and your men's program and, and why, because I, I can hear your passion and what you do and why you're doing it. Talk about how you're able to change people's lives. Yeah. Uh, well, I, the, the women's program is specializes in treating people who have BPD. I think most of our clients, if not all, have BPD. I think we do have a few clients that maybe have a more of a severe persistent mental illness right, la- right now, like schizophrenia. The men's program is, particu- is set up particularly for people with uh, SPMI, severe persistent mental illness, and, and really where most of our clients there are early in their disease, and, but they have not gotten to the point where they can navigate through the system to get into disability and then avail themselves of the, of the, of the state-funded programs. So they're still on their parents' insurance. Um, so those are the two populations that we work with, which is, ex- is expensive, um, for one. I mean, because I have to have case managers, full-time psychiatry, specialized medical, um, medical programming, it's expensive, but I, I just I just love that we do it, and I love that we're a solution. I just had uh, lunch with two wonderful people from Papillon, and one of the things they said is, we're just so glad you're there because we get those clients pretty regularly, and we, we don't always know how, how um, profound their illness is, and then we get find out how it is, and we know exactly where to go. And, uh, and I, and I really, I really uh, am glad to be able to provide, to provide that to the community. Uh, to do that requires just a lot of training, <laughs> required to work with that pop. Both of those populations just require a lot of training. Well, that's a lot of, of the, training. I mean, that's some of the hardest and most difficult mental illness to address because it's persistent. It's, it's like they carry it with them. And even after they get a lot of healing, it's not like it goes away they just have to learn to manage it, and it becomes very difficult. Um, so, so even somebody that's got some schizophrenic, you know, behaviors and patterns and symptoms, that would seem, you know, some would say, you know, we really can't help them. We can medicate them and hope they stay on their medication. But I don't hear you saying that. I hear you coming up with different solutions. Yeah, yeah. Well, one, the medication is wonderful now compared to when I first started. Uh, long-acting injectable, so I've uh, that has really been life-saving for so many people. There are there are other things too. There's uh, CBT for psychosis, and um, you know, like uh, the DBT adaptations for psychosis. And just just to give you an example, one of the things that there's a skill in DBT called fit the facts. And one of the things that we have been taught to do is when a voice or there's a command hallucination, we can say, does that fit the facts? And we're not saying that's wrong, that's, that's not there, that's not accurate, that's not true, that voice isn't, you know, you're just hearing things. We're just saying, well, the voice is telling you to do that. Does that fit the facts? I mean, and here's, my brain tells me to, like, an example that somebody gave me recently that I really loved is that they would wake up to thinking that they heard their phone their phone hadn't gone off. So we all have this, this, these, these the propensity to have these, I, I hate to say hallucinations, but that's really what they are. We all do it to some extent or another. And these people, the people that have schizophrenia, it's high, it's just, it's affects them in a lot and in, in far, a far greater mag, magnitude than it affects us. We can still say, I can still challenge my thoughts. You know, I have impulses too, and they're not always appropriate to act on, and they're maybe never appropriate to act on. And same with your voices. Your voices are telling you to do something. Does that fit the facts? Is that is that consistent with who you want to be or how you want to show up in this moment? So we can use those same sort of skills with clients with schizophrenia, and they can and help them build a better. And your voice is telling you not to brush your teeth. Have you ever been around somebody who doesn't brush their teeth? I don't like it. I don't like it either. So even though the voice is telling you to do that, does that fit the facts? Is that consistent with how you want to be? And most of them, especially after they're medicated, will really respond well to that. Hmm. Just to give you an example, 
Well, and it does. It happens to all of us. Irrational thinking and, and those patterns, well, they may not be to the same degree and the same severity, but we do. We all experience it. We all have to go, I'm not my thoughts. You know, my thoughts are there, but that doesn't mean they belong to me or that they're right or they're wrong or whatever. They're just thoughts and I have to choose what to do with them, right? Mm-hmm. And so we yep. take away the power of, of the thoughts that pop into our head when we can yep. do that. I love that. I was talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about homelessness. And I imagine that there's a a certain percentage of the population you deal with that either has been homeless or has a propensity to that. And this idea that, you know, and I'll tell you the story just briefly is that there was a couple of guys that in different situations that had gone through substance abuse treatment, had done all the the work, had um, gotten jobs gotten apartments and were in the process of, you know, being contributing members of society and a year or year and a half later come back and go, this is too much. I can't take it. I'm going back to the streets. I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's something that you run up against. Talk about that dynamic a little bit and how you address that and, and how you think about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I can even, even clients on my uh, caseload, um, have uh, I, and I'm thinking of two or three in particular that would hit these sort of limits of kind of conducting themselves well in in polite society, and then just kind of need to take off and um, and sometimes to some pretty pretty uh, extensively they would they would do this and, I, and I'm thinking of one client who even would would leave for periods of time and be on the streets and prostitute and um, and then I, I get her back I, in fact I remember I was talking to one of my DBT friends uh, her name is Linda DMF about this client because I've been in her life on and off for several years and I said, Linda, one of the, I remember I was talking about another client a long time ago, and I remember what you told me. It's always messy. So I just kind of there, there's an old there's an old commercial. I don't know if you remember it. I don't remember what what uh, what hotel it was for, but they'd say we we'll leave the light on for you. And I, and I would just I, <laughs> that's what I would say. I'll leave the light on for you. I'm here. I'm oh, here, and yeah. And how many... Does that answer your question? Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's just a curiosity. I don't know if it was a question as much as just, what does that look like? And what have you seen is, are there are there people who really prefer to live on the streets and and not not live a conventional lifestyle? And, is, and how do we think about that as, you know, as white, entitled people? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear that there are people who prefer... To live to live that way and be hobos, I don't know them. Mm. I mean, most of the time that my clients are saying, "I'm done. I'm heading back to the streets," or at least for a little while, it's because they're they're dysregulated and distressed, mm. and they just don't feel like it's what they're doing is working. And 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 then even if it is, I think of this one gentleman. Even though it was working, it just took so much energy, and so just kind of constantly thinking about what skills I need to be using here, and that he, I'm done. And then he'd go live by the river, and then I'd see him again three or four months later. Hmm. It's like it's, th- that sucks too. So <laughs> <laughs> you know. So I haven't met the people that really want to. What I mean is that people are distressed and just don't feel like they're functioning or they feel judged or they feel, you know, it's too much and that somehow the streets make sense. The problem is, is that you come back with new traumas almost always. And that's the sad part about it. And so what you're seeing is it's really more, like you said, a dysregulation. They're up against something, a trigger or whatever that is, and it feels unsurmountable for them. And I'm going to go back to what's familiar, which we all do that, right? We all do that. Um, Very interesting. But you'll see them messy, messy. I like that word. They'll (laughs) they'll come into treatment. They'll go out of treatment. They'll come Mm -hmm. into treatment. And and then what's the long term? Do they finally get to a stable place where they can function? What happens? Yeah, most people do. That's 
that's been my experience. And I, and I, and I've really had to change my thinking from leaving treatment as to say, well, that's a treatment failure to say, well, this is part of the process. I mean, there's one person who many people will know, so I'm definitely not going to use their name, but I worked with them for almost 10 years before he finally could kind of um, get into the life that he really wanted, kind of, kind of, and then and stay clean and sober. He's clean and sober four years now, I think, a little over four years. Wow. But, but it, it took, took 10 years. To 10 years. And I, and I think about that always when I start, when I, when I see someone's left and I think, oh gosh, a failure. I'm like, well, no, I just need to be, not think of that as a failure, but this is a step on their journey. And, 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 and in so doing and being that way, I'm a lot safer to come back to. And hopefully my team does that as well. Mm, That's incredible. And I mean, it, as a, as a therapist or counselor, it can sometimes feel like a failure on your part, right? And that you've got mm-hmm. to do some of your own work of, you know, we can't take ownership of people's choices and their free will. That's part of the journey of they get to pick. And then when they don't like what they pick, they come back and have a safe place. So I love the way you approach that and talk about that. It's very neutral. It's very non-shaming. It's very, well, you made a choice and now maybe you want to make a different one. Let's see what we can do, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes... I mean, we're always balancing that dialectic of, of, of accepting that they did this and look and wishing that they'd done something different and also saying we did a really good job and maybe there were some things that I could have done better. I mean, I love when people have come back and said, you know what, last time we didn't do this and this. Let's try this. Let's try it a little different. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, and I love that you bring that up. I was just thinking they have such incredible stories and so much to teach us. Um, you know, and everybody does. I think everybody has this incredible story and, and these people that struggle with schizophrenia or BPT or any serious mental illness, they have something to teach us. And when we can sit down and look at them as an authority or an expert on something, there's a lot to be gained as well as what we can offer them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, I call it the uh, Marshall Linehan says this, so I, I, she doesn't use the analogy, but I call it the, the pretty woman ending syndrome. Because he says, she says, how does the story end? Well, he saves her. And then what about her? Well, she saves him right back. It's the same with our clients. We're, we're changing them and they're changing. They're changing us too. Yeah. Hopefully for the better. Hopefully, yeah. That's the goal, right? But it's messy. <laughs> it might get ugly before it gets better. Yeah. Almost always does. Oh, that's incredible. Um, So, Eric, we could talk for hours and hours, and these stories are – I always love the stories, right? Because these are real people living real lives, doing the best that they can, and we're just here to see if we can't help and support them. And so I love the work that you do, and I love what you bring to the table. Um, What's in the future for you and for New Roads? Well, yeah, I get, I get asked that question a lot and I don't know if I'm just, I'm in my fifties and I'm emanating what's next, you know, um, the truth is, is that I, I'm not sure, you know, one of the things I always tell my clients is don't, don't make a change unless you're moving to something, you know, we want to get out of the habit of just fleeing. And I, I, you know, I've, I've, it's, things are, are wonderful in many ways because I, I, I'm, I'm doing uh, trainings all around the country now. I just offered to, to the folks over at uh, Papillon to teach them how to set up a, a consultation team, which I think, will, which is just wonderful for, for clinicians and for clinician retention. And, you, you know, so I'm, I'm helping the people at Neuros and we're, and we're helping the people outside of, you know, helping the community provide by providing, um, more attainable, financially attainable DBT treatment. So a lot of my trainings are in the Southeast. And it's pretty common for someone to be in one of my trainings and say, I haven't had training in four years because my, my organization can't afford it. And then what will happen is somebody wonderful like Tulane University will say, I'll host you. And they'll charge this person, hey, I'm going to charge you 100 bucks for a training that would normally cost 3000 oh, You know, wow. so... Um, so it's been wonderful to, to make this, this, this magnificent treatment accessible to, 
to others. And so I, I think what I've really been devoting myself to is what's next in terms of training my team. Uh, we've, uh, you know, there's some, some trauma therapies that I'd like them to learn. I'm in the process right now of learning. Uh, I'm in the, the University of Pennsylvania prolonged exposure therapy, train the trainer. So you you can, so I'll be certified in probably next month or two. And then, and then the next step is to become a certified trainer, which, which is, takes a little more time. And so it'd be nice to be able to have all my team, uh, because it's, it really is one of the best, maybe the best treatment for big T traumas that are just hooked in and holding on, you know, is, is PE. That's what the data is kind of telling us. Um, and I have about seven of my therapists who have, um, bless their hearts, have, have devoted themselves to becoming DBT certified clinicians. So, uh, right now I'm one of four in the state of Utah and there's, so there's not that many of us and, and it's, uh, it will be a wonderfully proud moment, kind of dad moment. And I don't, I hope that doesn't come across as mm-hmm. narcissistic dad moment. If I have six or seven people that work for me, most of the DVT certified people in the state will be at Neuroads. I mean, I will, I will be very, very proud of them at that point. So those are kind of the things we're working on. We're looking at maybe a couple other programs, uh, maybe a small program for people who maybe just for, for, because of their wealth and their status aren't fit, won't fit in quite as well at the, at our residential center, which is no frills. Mm-hmm. In fact, I got, I actually have somebody that texted that I've been talking to last night wanting to come in and they're, and I know who they are. We, we all know who they are. And I just said, I want you to really vet us because we are not fancy. I would love to have you, but we are not fancy. So yeah, you'll get great DBT, <laughs> but you're not going to have a chauffeur, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> well, that's gotta be hard to, to ask somebody to change their lifestyle to come and get treatment. Right. And so you're yeah. thinking, maybe we, we, change the lifestyle environment for them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about that. Um, I, I have a dear friend. I don't think I'm going to breach confidentiality because I don't think there's any way anybody would know who this is, but I have a dear friend who is Robert Downey Jr.'s sponsor. And I've not met Rob, Robert Downey Jr. But my friend tells me that one of the things that was a breakthrough for him is when he was disallowed to go to a fancy program. Mm -hmm. When the judge said, no, you're going to uh, Walden House. That's where you're going. And and he said it was really what he needed. It's, and so sometimes I think maybe I'm on the wrong path and let's help him have him adapt to, to some, you know, so I don't know. I'm batting it around. That's one of the things I'm thinking of doing. That's incredible. And I'm, I appreciate your thoughts around the trauma therapy approach because there's a lot of, a lot of them competing for, you know, we're the best and this is, you know, the EMDR kind of changed the environment for a long time. And then there's ACT and there's CBT, mm-hmm. you know, DP, TP and DB. And there's all sorts of different trauma approaches. But what you're seeing is the extended exposure is showing as one of the most effective. For those, so for PTSD. hmm and for traumas that just are not, so I'm not seeing this. This is what the, this is what the, the studies are showing. So if you got, if you have a, if you have PTSD, so you've been traumatized enough that you've actually developed full PTSD. So we have traumatic invalidations, which people nickname small T traumas. Mm-hmm. Then we have these big, big T traumas and we've now developed PTSD. So the, the data is really clear that if, if you have a stubborn trauma, it's just not responding to MDR. Um, that PE is indicated at that point. And I think part of it is just you spend so in PE, you're spending, there's not a lot of processing. You're doing imaginal exposure over and over and over again around that same trauma and doing in vivo in life exposure as well. So I think, I think that part of the reason is you just, you habituate because you're spending so much time on this one trauma instead of kind of processing through a series of events. Mm-hmm. I, I am not putting EMDR down. I think it's wonderful. We use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but those stubborn ones seems like PE is what, what you need. And, and, and the truth is, is my goal is, so my, my staff's already trained in DBT PE. I just want to be a trainer. So they're also trained in four different trauma therapies. So this way we can kind of have an informed, um, 
collaborative discussion with our clients, which ones we think might, I'm training them all. So which one do you think will really be beneficial for you? That's powerful because those are, they're tools. They're just tools to help people process what's going on mm-hmm. in their system, right? Um, do you, so I'm curious with extended exposure with PD, PT, is it, um, are you, um, that window of tolerance, are you working to help them have tolerance for it or you're just exposing? I mean, I'm sure it's not simple. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so in, in DBT, we, we always, one of the reasons that that's always in stage two is we want them to be able to regulate well enough mm-hmm. to get through exposure, whatever exposure we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so uh, the PE that, that Edna Foa created out of, she's a university of Pennsylvania. She actually created it in, in uh, Israel, but it's the most well studied at this point. And, um, the, the being exposed, we, we want to make sure that our clients are skilled enough to make it through. So, so, um, we, we have to, and neuros be particularly careful because these are people who are already, um, emotional, like, uh, sen- emotionally sensitive people. So we want to make sure that they've had 90 days without self-harm, that they've maybe had a year without drinking or using, you know, we will have some things that we'll, we'll want to make sure that we have in place before we begin exposure. So, cause then we're going to say, you know, let's talk over and over and over again for 40 minutes about the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And then we're going to do it again next week. You know, so thank you so much. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah. The thing I've been sign? avoiding for my entire life and you want to talk about it over and yeah. over and over. Yeah. Well, we can really, talk about it for a it long really time. It really works. And, yeah. And I don't know. I don't want to bore everybody. This is super exciting stuff for me. And so I could pick your brain for a long time. Um, and I appreciate you sharing your wisdom and being so, again, passionate to help this these people that can't, they're just not in a position to help themselves. They need someone that really understands what's going on and how to help them. So I appreciate the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. Um, and I imagine that... Uh, there's going to be people that listen to this and, and really get just how informed you are and how much you understand and are able to help people. They're going to want to get a hold of you. What's the best way for them to do that? Um, I think the best way would be just to send me an email. It's eric, E-R-I-C, at nrbh.com. I try to be really accessible to people. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. And, and I find that you know some people will give you their email address or some people will give you their phone number and you know, when somebody's giving you something where you can contact them directly, they're pretty serious about helping people. So oh, thanks. Say that. thank you, <laughs> Eric. Thanks so much. I sure appreciate your time. Sure thing. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an honor.